Welcome to the Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Nora Santivani, and joining me today is Greg Fuzeshi. So this is uh, an episode that is uh, linked to our uh, regular monthly Global Inflation Monitor, where we discuss the incoming inflation data and how those data are shaping our views. Should we jump straight in, Greg? Yes, we've been agonizing for months and months about whether we need to boil the frog or not. Um, And the inflation outlook is absolutely key to that, whether we're in one scenario or whether we can move over to the uh, soft landing scenario. So I I wonder whether you're seeing any progress at the global level in terms of uh, a disinflation trend uh, through July that is happening without there having to be a big uh, you know, labor market adjustment, which obviously we don't have yet. So how much independent disinflation are we getting? Yeah, so we are seeing progress. So let's let's be very clear about that. But I would say the soft landing is not in the bag yet. <laughs> it's certainly not a slam dunk. Um, with the releases in for July, we can see that the run rate on global core inflation has continued to come off. And we're now down to a three and a half percent pace in the three months to July. So that's quite encouraging. We've come from above 5% uh, in, in, in sort of the first half of the year on that run rate. So, you know, significant progress here, but clearly we're still above where central banks would like core inflation to be. Uh, Now, much of the decline in the past couple of months, I should say, has also been uh, mainly driven by core goods inflation, uh, where things are, uh, you know, coming off quite strongly, where services is generally a bit more sticky. Okay, so on the the core goods side, so where where do you see the... Um, the main sources of the disinflation and how do you see that evolving uh, going forward? Yeah, so this this slide in, in core goods prices, it, it seems to be driven by a number of factors. I think we can point to, first of all, the weakness in the manufacturing sector, which I think you can talk much more about <laughs> um, covering the euro area where a lot of that weakness seems to be uh, concentrated. But that's been going on for, for some time now. And I think that's something that's weakening uh, pricing power in, in, the, in the goods sector. Then generally, we have this fading of supply chain bottlenecks and and distortions and that's been ongoing for for some time and you know most of these global supply chain pricing indices have already reverted to pre-pandemic norms for quite some time but in terms of how they're passing through to consumer prices that's quite lagged so we're still seeing that kind of filtering through and then on top of this we have the China story and that, that I would say is closely tied to the pandemic supply, supply chain dynamics. But what we have right now is a situation whereby uh, deflation in China is sort of an independent deflationary force um, for the rest of the world um, on top of these other factors or certainly amplifying that downtrend in core goods inflation in the near term. Uh, both domestic and export prices in China are falling very sharply. If you look at export price deflation, it's running at a minus 20% pace, and, and that's getting mirrored in very large declines in trading partner import prices. So if you look at your area import prices from China, they're, they're down about 15% annualized. For the US, we're down about 4% annualized. So this is something certainly that I think has further to run in, in the near term and 
we could get this move down in core goods uh, inflation extending. If we look at the month-on-month -month pace, core goods prices are flat uh, in, in July, and in June, they were about 0.1. So if we assume a monthly pace, which is roughly flat, you know, we're going to get down to zero-ish in the next few months. And that would be getting back to the sort of pre-pandemic norm for core goods inflation. We were running somewhere around 0.5% prior to the pandemic. So that's all quite um, encouraging for the near-term core inflation outlook. Okay, I mean, that, that sounds like the soft landing scenario is in play. Um, but what about services? Yeah, so the reason we're not quite convinced that the soft landing is um, is going to happen is really to do with the stickiness in services. You know, we are seeing signs of progress, but certainly we're not seeing as meaningful a disinflation as, as for core goods. So on the services side, we're kind of come off to somewhere around a four and a half percent pace here in annualized terms in, in the three months uh, to July. So things are still pretty sticky. You know, if you look, for example, in the U.S., um, even though core goods prices fell 0.3% on the month, core services prices are up 0.3%. And, you know, you can look at the so-called super core measure. Again, that's printing quite soft, but if you look at the Fed's preferred core PC measure, that's remained a lot stickier, near 4%. And, you know, a number of factors point to it continuing to remain quite elevated. So, uh, you know, the U.S. team has written quite a few detailed pieces looking at these sort of divergences, but the point being that if you take out a lot of these volatile items, then uh, services inflation, especially on the PC measure, is, is remaining quite sticky on the whole. Um, with that in mind, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on the euro area. Like, where does the euro area sit in all this relative to what I've described, especially for the US and, and more broadly in the global picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the trends that you've spoken about are very relevant for the euro area as well. Um, but we have one additional factor, which is that we had a much, much bigger energy price shock than uh, other parts of the world. Um, and, and that is affecting not only energy inflation, which is now coming off quite significantly, um, but has also affected uh, a lot of the core items. Electricity prices were moved up due to the increase in gas prices. They are linked to the, due to the market structure. And that's had an impact on core items as well. I mean, we have done some work to try and look at on a component by component basis to look at the correlations between market gas prices and uh, the inflation rates uh, in those categories. It's, it's not very conclusive because there are some methodological issues, but there's a very strong suggestion that there is a significant energy effect uh, in the core numbers. Um, mm -hmm. And given that those prices peaked uh, you know, late late last year, um, we have, I, I would say, a bit of a delayed moderation in, in some of our, our core numbers. So we do think they're coming off. You know, we had core inflation running kind of a 0.5 type pace, um, and we're probably closer to 0 0.2, 0 0.3 at the moment. But that also makes some judgments about distortions. Um, it's a bit of a tedious topic, just like we'd like to take Ireland out of the GDP numbers. Um, you need to take German package holiday prices out of the inflation numbers. And they have caused uh, a lot of distortion to the, to the run rate. 
the weight rebounded uh, because of the recovery in tourism. And because package holiday prices in level terms swing around a lot during the year, so holiday is expensive when children are off school um, and cheap uh, when they're back in school, the weight interacts with the level of package holidays during the year and is being boosted, for example, at the moment due to this calculation effect. So you need to take all of that out. Our best judgment is based on those calculations is that we have slowed. Uh, so from something like a 0.5 pace to something like a 0.2, 0.3 pace. So right, but you're, yeah, but your overall core is still pretty firm, right? And when I look at your services inflation, it's what, still like five, five and a half percent. So those are pre- still pretty firm numbers. Yes, right? but, but this is where the distortions play yeah. into it. Package holiday prices are entirely on the, uh, on, on the services side. And also you had a, a positive uh, base effect at the moment because of the subsidized transport ticket in Germany last year. Um, so there was a very cheap uh, ticket being offered for three months. Um, and there is a, success, a successor to it, but it's not quite as cheap. So the year-on-year inflation rate is currently being uh, bumped up. So uh, core at five and a half in July, we think it's probably four nine for the okay. weights distortion and could be lower if you also take into account the base effect from the from the transport ticket. So we're probably somewhere four and a half to five at the moment. On, on okay, the- yeah, which is which is still uncomfortably high either way we um, look at it. Just to round things out a little bit there in EM, if we can speak outside of China, EMX China, you know, core inflation has come down a fair bit. And I think we should highlight that core inflation momentum is actually now getting back close to central bank targets in, in a number of countries in EM. If you look at Brazil, Chile, Peru, Czechia, you know, much of EM Asia, now a lot of that has to do with this sharp side in core goods inflation that I, I highlighted. And, uh, you know, many EM countries are significant beneficiaries of that um, disinflation also, you know, Goods generally have a larger weight within core and EM than, than they do in DM. Um, but it's quite encouraging what we're seeing in those countries in momentum terms, just you know, all the way back to back to target. Services generally in EM coming down to somewhere around a 4% pace. So while there is a fair amount of differentiation across countries, there is a group within EM, and we'll come to in a bit, but this is predominantly the group of EMs that are, have started cutting rates, you know, in response to this downshift in momentum, uh, where things are looking quite encouraging, I would say. Should we talk a little bit about, you know, food and energy and those things? Because the way I see the situation is we're getting this encouraging disinflation in in core, even though a lot of it is goods and services a bit sticky, but there's progress there. Where I'm a little bit concerned, and maybe this is more of a concern again for EM, is that in headline terms, uh, the disinflation we've had through the first half of the year seems to be stalling at this point. So headline inflation came down something like 300 basis points uh, in, in the first half, but actually ticked a bit higher in, in July and, and, and the run rate kind of has been steady for a while. Uh, I think both food and energy, uh, the earlier disinflationary impulse uh, that was quite powerful uh, is now starting to turn. Um, if we start with food, uh, what we're seeing is uh, in July, 
uh, food inflation started to pick up again after a very large slide uh, into the middle of the year. You know, food inflation came down all the way to about 3%, which is sort of its pre-pandemic run rate. In July, things started picking up again. Now, a lot of that was driven by India, where we've just had this surge in food prices, especially vegetable prices. Uh, and if you take India out of it, you know, we are seeing um, food inflation also tick a little bit higher. I mean, certainly not as much um, <laughs> as with India, but, you know, there are signs that perhaps this strong disinflation we've had into the middle of the year is now um, about to shift. Now, just to be clear, we don't really see significant near-term upward pressure taking hold. Uh, if we look at the major agricultural commodity prices, you know, they had risen sharply in July, but most of those gains have been reversed uh, through through August. And I think the main point is that we're still down about 25% from last year's peak in terms of the, the global food price index, the FAO food index. And I think the point there is that this big decline is still being passed through to process food prices in a number of countries. And um, maybe we can speak to Europe in, in particular, where it kind of feels like that disinflation maybe has further to run. What, what's your impression there? Yeah, it's it's quite a mixed story. I mean, I mean again, energy, I think, plays a role because, um, you know, fertilizer, uh, production has been has been affected by the the jump in in gas prices, um, so there is a a cost element to to the food story in in Western Europe as well, which you know is fading, but with a with a delay. There has been slowing. If I look at the month on month data that the ECB publishes in terms of the run rate on both unprocessed and processed food. Um, so, for example, process was running at like one, one and a half percent month on month uh, for most of last year. Um, and that over the last four months is slow to something like a 0.4 pace. Um, I mean, that's still pretty rapid in terms of year on year if, if that continues, but is, is better than where we have been. The unprocessed is a bit more jumpy and we had firmer month in July. But yeah, I mean, we do expect that to slow further. In terms of other indicators, again, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So the ECB has some data on farm gate prices uh, in the, for the EU um, and those show uh, big declines in dairy and mm. cereal, but not on meat and oils. Um, so yeah, I, overall, I would say it's going to slow, but it's not uh, with a lot of noise around it. Yeah, I mean, if it, it feels like certainly El Nino is is still a risk that everyone's talking about, and you know we've we've written um, extensively on this. Um, certainly, it's something that poses upside risks, but um, in terms of its timing, I think it's more a, a late year, early next year impact. If it and if it's severe, even if it's severe, I think that. Uh, shift would take a couple of months at least to feed through into the consumer food prices. So we really would be looking at, you know, some impact from El Nino outside of a couple of EM countries where some impact is already visible, but in, in broader terms, um, probably not till early next year. So it kind of feels like the near-term momentum on global food inflation is still a bit to the downside. And then maybe to round things off on energy, uh, what I would say there is, you know, we had been looking for the 
the deflationary impulse from energy to start fading by now. We've had this rebound in crude oil prices from the July lows were up something like 12%. But through July, actually energy prices continued to fall at the consumer level. We were down 0.6% on the month. We're down still 8.3% annualized. And a lot of that actually had to do with Europe and European consumer energy prices um, coming off, not so much the euro area, but Scandies, the UK, we had a big um, downward adjustment in the household um, uh, energy bills. So that was helping us uh, out a little bit through July. In terms of you know going forward, uh, if we sustain current levels on Brent, then we would eventually expect the, the drag from energy CPI to turn into modest lift by the fourth quarter. But again, it doesn't feel like that's going to be a significant inflationary impulse in the near term. So putting everything together, uh, it looks like in the near term, core disinflation globally can continue. We have core inflation at 3.4% this quarter, coming down further to 2.8% by the fourth quarter. My sense is that from a top-down perspective, the, the risks to core in the near term are to the downside. And again, I'm going to emphasize the, the deflationary impact from China and downward pressure on core goods inflation more generally. Um, I think on headline, things are a little bit more two-sided in terms of the risk bias. And then further out, we have globally both core and headline inflation ending next year in, in terms of the settling point around 2.8. So again, that speaks to our view of an incomplete disinflation, at least at the global level. Um, maybe this is a good time to pivot, Greg, to how central banks are viewing the latest inflation data and um, I think the ECB is is a particularly interesting one at this juncture. Obviously, we've got Jackson Hole coming up uh, tomorrow, and then we've got your HICP flash for August next week. Do you want to talk us through what, what to expect here and how you're viewing the ECB outlook for the next few months? Yeah, I, I mean... I mean, perhaps starting with the inflation side. So, I mean, we, we expect next week um, core inflation to come lower. Um, that's just the way that the year on year works out. Um, but then for there to be another big move down in September, which is when the German transport ticket price drops out uh, from the year on year comparison. And also the weights distortion starts to move uh, back down again um, because you go past the, the summer holiday period. Um, so you're going to get a possibly a one percentage point move down in, in core inflation over the next couple of releases. Uh, which would uh, you know take you to to four and a half ish um that would already be be quite quite good um in terms of the ecb i mean i think the inflation prints uh, and the inflation outlook um everything is being caught up in the slump of the pmi hmm. um because in some sense the the starting point was if you take the ecb's uh, uh, june projections is that there is disinflation in the pipeline, but it's a pretty narrow path to get there, and it's going to be incomplete. So they had a 2025 forecast, which was still above target, both for headline and core, um, by about three-tenths or so. But but now that you've got the PMI slumping, the growth forecast that uh, was in the background there, which has a pickup to about a 1.5% pace already in the second half of this year, um, is being challenged. Um, and at the last meeting, the, the ECB already became more growth sensitive. Mm. 
because weak growth reinforces the sense that something is happening on the transmission side, even if you're not entirely sure whether it is monetary policy or something else that is pulling you down. Um, but weak growth is a key part of getting inflation under control, um, and you're getting it uh, based on the PMI. So I think um, the uncertainty on growth is pushing them in all likelihood towards uh, a pause just to see how the data evolve. Yeah, so I, I postponed that hike to, to October. I didn't cancel it because we do still have a forecast that the recovery continues, um, but uh, you know the uncertainty around that has certainly gone up. Okay, so ECB on hold here or pausing at least. In terms of other central banks in, in Western Europe, you've still got hikes, right? So Bank of England is probably the main one. What's your sense there in terms of putting everything together? What's the bias around that call? Well, the bias is moving in the same direction, but um, because the inflation picture in the US, uh, sorry, in the UK looks more mm -hmm. troubling than, yeah. than in the euro area, everything is happening at a higher altitude. Um, so we you know, the, the Bank of England already has rates at a higher level and we still have uh, two hikes in the forecast. Um, the weakness that is coming through also on the UK PMI isn't quite as pronounced as on the euro area side, but is certainly there. Um, and that's making us question to some extent the second hike, uh, but not yet the, you know, not the first one. So there's still more in the pipeline. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. For for the Fed, uh, you know, they've made it clear that they're waiting for more data. We've got the August payrolls next week, then the August CPI report will be, I think, the last data point we're waiting for. But, you know, everything we've seen so far points to a, a pause um, at the September FOMC meeting. And then our base case is that they kind of stay on hold through this year and into, into early next year. There are several near-term sources of core CPI disinflation that are going to fade later in the year. On top of that, you've got, the again, the Fed's uh, preferred core PC inflation, which is still quite sticky. So I think if that gets the attention of Fed officials, that stickiness, then the, the, the current optimism that, you know, the recent slide in core inflation will allow them to, to ease policy will likely start to fade and um, you know, we end up in a scenario of rates on hold, maybe even a return to hikes, right? So I think that would be something we certainly can't rule out. Um, but certainly the Fed's on hold here, or, or at least pausing for now. Uh, for EM, central banks, the story is, uh, is still one of easing that, that started in the last month or so. We've got Brazil, Chile, Peru, Hungary, all cutting um, in September. We've got October cuts from Poland, from Colombia. So there's certainly a group of EM countries which are uh, in, in the process of uh, removing some of, some of that quite restrictive uh, policy stances uh, they have in place and you know, reacting to the downshift in core inflation momentum um, that we've discussed here. So yeah, it's a bit of a tale of tale of two halves, right? DMs are pausing, but still biased to tighten, whereas EMs have started the, the easing process already. It's probably a good point for us to wrap things up, Greg. Thanks so much for joining me on this Global Inflation Monitor Research Wrap. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening, and we hope to continue the conversation on the next episode.